Find that bar of chocolate you've been hiding. It's time to unwrap this week's Coco News. It's Easter, which means time for another egg award ceremony from Be Slavery Free. A few weeks ago, we were chatting with the people behind the awards, Fuzz and Carolyn Kitto, who couldn't have been nicer people. They explained to us how the award started and what a struggle it was to find any company doing the right thing. As much bad publicity as there are around the injustices in the industry, this year's awards show just how far some of those companies have come. But not all, of course, which is why the Rotten Egg Award still exists. First, let's celebrate the good news. Many companies have done exceptionally well, and the top place goes to the aptly named Beyond Good, who have shown they can live up to their name with green eggs across the board. Companies complete assessments, which are divided into six categories. Each egg's color represents the grade they have achieved for each area, and the scores are necessarily relative to the rest of the industry. Mondelez, which has recently been in the news over a child labor scandal, scored a yellow egg in the child labor category, which means they were identified as starting to implement good policies. Next year should then see them scoring better. The Rotten Egg Award goes once again to Stork for lack of transparency and being unreasonable. They also received the Rotten Egg Award last year. For the full report, go to the Bar Talks website. Celebrities are setting the trend with plant based chocolate. At the start of the year, we reported on popular chocolate trends we expected to see becoming more prominent in 2022. A shift towards plant based products, lower sugar snack offerings, and a focus on unique flavors, were some predictions. As is often the case, what is in trend can usually be determined by what the celebrities and popular people are doing. A fitting example would be the recent launch of the new brand Feastables, which is co-founded by the YouTube star Jimmy Donaldson, aka Mr. Beast, and Jim Murray, who has over 10 years of experience in the consumer goods industry. Donaldson's channel is currently the fifth most subscribed channel on YouTube. He has previously made headlines with his extravagant stunts, such as planting 20 million trees, with the help of the YouTube community, to celebrate reaching 20 million subscribers. The Feastables brand has just released its first product, Mr. Beast Bars, a line of vegan chocolate products. The new range of chocolates reflects much of what we expected to see becoming popular this year, being plant-based, containing minimal ingredients, and coming in unique flavors, such as their quinoa crunch. Feastables is focused on making high-quality, great-tasting products accessible to as many people as possible, including those with dietary restrictions, claims Murray. This sentiment is reflected in the ingredients list of their new bars, which is limited to sugarcane, cocoa, cocoa butter, and sunflower lecithin. By formulating our first bars without dairy, Feastables is encouraging everyone to participate in the fun and engaging brand, explains Murray. Going further, the brand has also made commitments to sustainable practice by working with the Rainforest Alliance to aid in the ethical sourcing of their chocolate, and with TerraCycle and EcoCart to improve their recyclability and ensure a carbon-neutral product. It is clear that those behind this brand have an understanding of popular culture and what consumers value when making purchasing decisions. As more celebrities promote plant-based, ethical chocolate alternatives, they could open the door for many who had previously overlooked these options. 
While this is an example of how modern chocolate brands are emerging, to offer the market, organic, plant-based offerings and sustainability, baked into their business practices, these ethical brands are attempting to move the mainstream to accept higher prices. The Mr. Beast bars sell for $2.89 per 60-gram bar, almost double the price of a regular 100-gram bar of Cadbury's dairy milk. However, if they can scale the product, they may achieve what others have so far failed, to change the value perception of chocolate. Perhaps as more companies move into this space, the price people would be willing to bear for ethically produced chocolate will become more apparent as brands find that sweet spot. We have seen pricing as a hurdle for many plant-based chocolate makers, looking to introduce their ethical chocolate into a broader market. When regular chocolate sells at half the price, convincing the average consumer to pay more for less, even if the quality is better, is no easy task. Studies have shown that even the majority of conscientious consumers consider price as an important factor. Feastables wants to encourage everyone to engage with their brand and products, but they must ensure they have the price point right. The alternative will result in their bars being less inclusive than they hoped. An example at the other end of the spectrum is the newly released vegan chocolate bar by musician Billie Eilish, which uses rice milk to replace dairy and comes in at a steep $10 per 80 gram bar using Rainforest Alliance certified cocoa and certified organic. A lot of emphasis has been put on the use of sustainable materials in the description but the singer leaves out details on how much of the $10 goes to the farmer. These emerging trends make it clear the direction chocolate companies should be heading, if they want to remain relevant to their customers. While chocolate has been enjoyed worldwide since Fry's produced the first bar in 1847, consumer preferences are ever-changing. With the amount of competition emerging in the plant-based and ethical chocolate spaces, it is now more important than ever for big brands to reflect customers' values in their products. Big chocolate companies have little motivation to push up prices however, and for families feeling the pinch over increased cost of living, their lower prices could give them the edge. Sustainable, and plant-based chocolate costs more, and if big brands continue to put cheap products on the shelves, the market for the smaller, ethical brands are going to have to continue to struggle to go mainstream. Introducing Kwame on Cocoa, column on Bartox. The cocoa chocolate industry is one of the most complex to understand. While over 4 million smallholder cocoa farmers produce over 4 million metric tons of cocoa beans a year, their national governments receive less than $10 billion from an industry worth over $130 billion. I mention countries, not the cocoa farmers, because, in Ghana, the farmer is entitled to only a percentage of a price they have no hand in setting. Currently, they receive an estimated 65% of the world market price from the sector regulator, although this is an improvement on the 1% they received in the 1950s. To the cocoa farmer, sustainability is heavily influenced by economics. The situation-specific issues that underpin what is termed child labor, its misguided definitions and the solution ascribed to it raise a lot more complex questions than quick answers. Value addition, which many researchers suggest as the strategy to improve farmers' livelihoods, also faces many roadblocks, inadequately explained in academic research papers and the mainstream media.
During my master's studies at the Global Development Institute at the University of Manchester, I was regularly frustrated by the inadequate understanding of the cocoa sector by some of the stakeholders that discussed it in research papers and conferences. Yet they were the ones seen as the expert of the sector. There was also an inadequate representation of the voices of people with lived experience in the sector that could provide context and a nuanced explanation to ongoing discussions. I argue that this inadequate understanding of the sector and the lack of representative voices has led to the development of ineffective sustainable livelihood strategies for cocoa farmers, hence leading to the value captured by cocoa farmers dropping from 16.3% in 1980 to 3% today. So, as a cocoa farmer's son who has managed cocoa-related industrial and plantations projects, my complex relationship with the sector offered me a unique perspective and understanding that was not represented in the mainstream discussions. The other sectoral experience I have gained working in oil and gas, the telecoms industry, ICT, the apparel sector etc., also gave me different skill sets and tools that allow me to explore the cocoa and chocolate industry in a more unconventional way. To elucidate real issues, workable solutions, and ways that stakeholders like the cocoa farmers can be collaborated with in a more meaningful way and to ensure value distribution quality. For example, the fact that the cocoa farmer and the indigenous Ghana investor cannot venture into cocoa processing without the consent of a colonial institution in London called the Federation of Cocoa Commerce. About 95% of professionals within the sector do not actually know about the FCC and the role they continue to play in the sector until I wrote an article about them. So, in the last two years, I started writing about the cocoa chocolate sector as a syndicated columnist in the Business and Financial Times, the Cocoa Post, Gone Talks Business, my own newsletter, the Cocoa Diaries and now, on Bar Talks, to provide new, heterodox insights that attempt to explain the issues within the cocoa sector. I've also tried to offer situation-specific recommendations that suit the political, economic, technological, ecological, and legal environment of the respective stakeholder, especially the smallholder cocoa farmer. The feedback from the public's interaction, including cocoa sector professionals and academics, with my articles, has been incredibly positive and demonstrated a deep knowledge gap, misinterpretation of data, and the lack of other heterodox writers. In 2021, the European Union invited me to participate in its roundtables on deforestation, traceability and child labour in the cocoa sectors, towards developing a country-based solution for the EU. I have also been engaged as a consultant by an agri-tech startup to develop a trade and sustainability strategy that can increase their real income and the overall livelihood of over 4,500 cocoa farmers in Cameroon. So, the launch of the Kwame on Cocoa column on Bartox is to provide you with my perspectives on issues within the sector. Parts of it will provide you with a different understanding of the issues and proposed new ways of tackling them. I will interview various stakeholders within the sector and present my musings on their answers. I will also be criticizing the practices, actions, and policies of all stakeholders within the sector, from regulators to chocolate manufacturers, 
to equipment manufacturers, to pharma cooperatives. Nigeria lined up to join LID system. In 2019, Ghana and Côte d'Ivoire, which account for around 60% of global cocoa production, set up the Living Income Differential System, LID. The LID system aimed to provide a boost to the income of the poorest cocoa growers in the West African regions by charging a premium to the multi-billion dollar chocolate industry purchasing their beans. It has now been reported that Nigeria could soon be on board with the LID system, a move that would add strength to cocoa producers, especially in the wake of the pandemic that saw cocoa prices lowered. The expansion of the pricing agreement is not set to stop at Nigeria, with other countries expected to join the system, further strengthening its authority. Fuad Mohamed Abubakar, head of Ghana Cocoa Marketing Company UK Ltd, said, Very soon we're going to have Nigeria on board with the LID system, and increasingly other countries are going to join. The matter is not yet confirmed, however, as the Nigerian Ministry of Agriculture is due to discuss with Ghana's Cocoa Board next month, a point of focus is to ensure Nigeria adopts the LID system. Abubakar also expressed his feelings towards the upcoming legislation set to be introduced by the European Union, which would require chocolate brands to guarantee that their supply chains are free from unsustainable practices contributing to deforestation. While he commended the proposition as being a step in the right direction, he questions why it has not been taken even further to include fair living wages for farmers. The legislation is good because we do think companies should be responsible for these things, but how can you source ethical cocoa without paying ethical prices, asked Abubakar. Low farmer pay has also been attributed as one of the major reasons for the prevalence of child labor in the industry. With better pay for their work, it is expected that farmers would not feel the need to recruit their children to assist with potentially dangerous farming activities. The UK Fairtrade Foundation reports that cocoa farmers earn an average of 6% of what consumers pay for their chocolate. Meanwhile, Ghana is having discussions with Dubai in the hope that they can expand into alternative markets to command a higher price for their beans. With global affairs and weather conditions creating instability for cocoa farmers, the extra income could be the lifeline needed to support the industry's farmers through these uncertain times. The Mystery of Peru's Cocoa Tree Pollination When it comes to talking about cocoa, a lot of focus goes into the processes behind chocolate production, from growing and fermentation, to roasting and processing, but there is one key element that rarely makes it into the discussion, pollination of the cocoa trees. With cocoa being such an important global commodity, it may seem surprising that little is known about the pollination of the cocoa tree, from a biological standpoint. As it turns out, observing cocoa pollination is challenging, since each tree hosts thousands of tiny cocoa flowers and attracts a diversity of equally small insects. A new study, conducted in Peru, by an international research team at Julius Maximilians Universitat in Germany, has brought attention to some of the complexities of cocoa flower pollination. A glue was applied to cocoa flowers in 20 different agroforestry systems across both northern and southern Peru, to help researchers to identify the animals visiting the flowers. The study also took into account the amount of shading and proximity to surrounding forests, and how these factors influenced the flowers' visitors. 
the results. In the north of Peru, where conditions are dry, aphids, 38%, ants, 13%, and thrips, 10%, made up the majority of the flower's visitors. In the south, where weather conditions are more humid, thrips made up 65% of visitors, with midges accounting for 14% and parasitic wasps making up 10%. The plantation's level of shade, also seemed to have an effect on its visitors. Insects in the north, prefer the shade, whereas in the south, more insects were found in the less shaded plantations. The study took place during the rainy season, so the results can only be interpreted based on visitor activity under these conditions. It was also noted that the distance to the nearest forest had no relation to the amount of visitors received in either region. The team of researchers also observed, that the transfer of pollen and the resulting fruit from pollinated flowers, was very poor, only 2% of the pollinated cocoa flowers bore fruit. This number tripled to 7%, if the pollen was transferred by hand, however it still represents a low number. It is not clear why the fruit, set in these regions, are so low, though researchers speculate that it could be due to a lack of efficient cocoa pollinators in Peru. Biologist Justine Van Singel, a researcher on the project, said. In Indonesia, you can achieve a fruit set of around 50% with hand pollinations. This is probably because the plantations there, do not use the native South American cocoa clones, but ones with higher yields. Genetic incompatibility, as well as a low pollen grain count, could be the reasons we are seeing such a low fruit set in Peruvian cocoa trees. An average of 30 pollen grains were counted on the cocoa flowers observed in the study, which is only a quarter of what is needed for successful pollination. While cocoa plantations in Africa and Asia see greater success in terms of yield, the researchers explained that high-yielding non-native cocoa clones only produce 5 to 10 years of good harvest. After this period, the plantations are abandoned, and more forests are cut down to make way for new plantations. With deforestation posing a major problem for the industry, this process is unsustainable and far from ideal. It seems then, that a balance needs to be struck between longer-lasting plantations and those with high yields. Thanks for listening to this week's Coco Newscast. You can also catch our other podcasts, including the Coffee Newscast and the popular Bean Talks with Nick and Max, which goes out every Monday. Stay safe and I'll see you all next week.